Welcome back to the 201st episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including Trump has been knocked off the ballot, or at least the Supreme Court said he couldn't be on the ballot in Colorado. Uh, A interesting article talking about why we should preserve the Electoral College, you know, going into 2024 in a presidential election. It's important to talk about. And then another one talking about why we're kind of hesitant to talk about where the money goes when it goes to Ukraine. And, well, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So does a state court have the ability to disenfranchise its voters? Maybe that's um, really... hmm, Maybe that's really weighted language. Does the Supreme Court have the ability in any state to directly limit the voting procedures of its people? Now, some people may argue that's totally okay. I would say even in this case, and going back to the one that happened in Pennsylvania, the only people that can limit the or restrict the voting parameters are the people that are directly elected by the citizens in the state house or the state uh, senate, depending, you know, some is house of delegates, some is just how everybody has their own term for it, but their version of the house and the senate. And that can be weighed in upon whether or not that bill that is passed is in violation of the constitution of that state by the Supreme Court. But I think overall, you can't have it completely skip the legislator and then go directly to the Supreme Court since they are not directly elected by the people in most states. There are different states, and I think there could be a totally different argument made in states such as, I believe it's Michigan, where they directly elect their judges. Now, you could say that that is actually the democratic process working itself out. And in that case, I'd be more open to that argument. We could have that conversation. But especially this one that happened in Colorado, I think it's something that really needs to be talked about. Uh, I was going to say a little bit more, but it's been talked about a lot. But now we're going to get a, a, a layman's position rather than the talking heads in the media that are already biased and have their way about it. You're getting somebody that has a little bit of a dog in this fight because it is my nation, but not enough of a dog in this fight to really die on any of the particular hills, at least not yet. Um, there are some arguments where I'm like, okay, you know, actually that, that does make a good amount of sense. And, but there are some other ones where I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll hear you out. I'll see where this goes and I'll at least try to understand where you're coming from. So our first article, it comes from Salon and the article headline reads, I have been skeptical. Now I'm completely sold. Legal experts on Trump Colorado ballot ruling. So this is someone who was like, "Uh, I don't know about the Supreme Court doing this in Colorado. I don't know about Colorado making sure that Trump can't be on the ballot. And now he's like, you know what? Never mind. I changed my mind. I am game at this point. So now you know where this person's coming from. You obviously know the angle that uh, Salon is taking. But let's jump into the first paragraph, kind of set the scene. Quote, the Colorado Supreme Court on Tuesday declared former President Donald Trump ineligible to appear on the state's primary ballot under the U.S. Constitution's insurrection clause. A majority of the court holds that Trump is disqualified from holding the office of president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the court wrote in a 4-3 to decision. And here's the part that a lot of people are citing, hey, the court, you know, they may already have a little bit of their biases, but they're not taking this lightly. They're not making it a political game. They are trying to be serious here. And this is their exact quote from the decision that they made. Quote, we do not reach these conclusions lightly, the major opinion read. 
we are mindful of the magnitude and weight of the questions now before us. We are likewise mindful of our solemn duty to apply the law without fear or favor and without being swayed by public reaction to the decision that the law mandates we reach. So, end quote, by the way. So if you're hearing that, you're like, okay, so they're, they're at least taking this seriously. And I mean, yeah, they, they may fully feel as though they are enforcing the law as it is on the books. I'm not trying to delve into their motives here. For all I know, they could absolutely like the way that Trump governed, but they really do believe that he needs to be off the ballot, or they could hate his guts and they think he should be off the ballot, or they hate his guts, but they don't think that they should take away his ability in order to be on the ballot going into the primary, and then probably this would also apply to the general election as well. All of that doesn't necessarily matter because their actions speak for themselves. Whether or not, I mean, hopefully, in an ideal world, our judges are able to separate their emotion, their feelings, their ra- even their logically their logical feelings about a certain situation from the job they have to do, which is completely legal and scholarly in nature. They hopefully are not affected by politics, which uh, I have a hard time believing. I think there are good judges out there on every side of the political aisle that are able to be devoid of their political persuasions and actually uh, do their job as they're supposed to. But it also, we do see different instances where they are political in nature. So I'm going to give benefit of the doubt, but that doesn't mean that it 100% holds true here. So why is this uh, taking the country by storm? Because it's a precedent, first of all. If Colorado and their Supreme Court is able to do this, and they get it past the Supreme Court, because at this point it will go to the Supreme Court, you've heard that a thousand times, and it will have to be litigated there because it's the highest court in the land, and because there are other people waiting in the wings who are waiting for uh, Colorado's decision to get through the Supreme Court, they will set the precedent. And then if it passes and the Supreme Court says, yes, the Supreme Court of Colorado, they had the right to do this. We don't necessarily, uh, they may not, they probably won't even say whether they agree or not because that will politicize them. But if they were to say, hey, we don't even agree, but they do have the right to do this, They have this system, which is called federalism, and they can handle their elections state by state. That's the whole purpose of the clause in the Constitution that mandates that states will handle their elections, not the federal government. Then this could pass, and then there would be a whole bunch of other states who are lined up behind. And there are states who probably haven't even filed anything yet because they think, oh, it won't get actually... Uh, this court case won't actually go anywhere. And then we'll have some attorneys generals or some other groups who are like, okay, hey, this is our time. It was passed in Colorado. We didn't think it would make it through in Oklahoma, but now that this precedent has been set, we can uh, make this argument and get Trump off the ballot. So there are people waiting in the wings. Now, this is a concerted effort to get Trump off the ballot. There's no doubt about this. You can't deny that it is non-political. A lot of the groups that are going to do this or trying to do this, they're democratic in nature. They're funded by democratic organizations. They're nonprofits that lean to the left. And there are some even uh, never-Trumper organizations that have joined in during this process. But you can't deny that they are political in nature. They want to disenfranchise a person from being able to run. Whether or not you agree that it's completely justified. That is most definitely their aim here. And that's the question that I'm concerned about at the end of the day. Do we want to allow lawfare to work at this level? 
let me ask you, if this works for Donald Trump, and in the future there's an amazing Democratic candidate who speaks to the moderates, who speaks to somebody in the middle, uh, an average mom or dad in the suburbs, and can sway even some more Republican-leaning voters. And because of that, the Republican Party is afraid of him. And maybe he did something that was a little untoward, something that could be considered insurrection, or even something that just barely violates a constitutional precept so much that they're willing to approach getting him off of the ballot and out of the election altogether through lawfare. Is that okay? Is it okay to have the right-wing money groups go in and file all these briefs, have all these large donors donating to them, and basically having tax-free write-offs for their money, and then that money gets used to benefit them and get rid of a candidate who may appeal to 60% of the the populace. And I'm not saying that it's very likely. I'm saying it's probably going to be very rare. But this is always, always a question, and I've, I've brought this up in the last few days when I've been talking to people, the violation of norms. When you violate norms in politics, when you create a new norm, when it comes back and bites you in the butt, you can be angry. You, you, can, you can be saddened. But that doesn't mean that you can sit there and righteously object, saying, oh, this is, this is outrageous. We should never let this happen. Like I said, you can be angry because it's not going your way. But you can't be angry that it's, they're taking up the old precedent that somebody else set. And I think this is a dangerous precedent, using lawfare, which is also what you could argue is happening with all these different indictments of, of Trump. They could have brought them earlier. They could have brought them after the election. They could have brought them after he's out of the presidency if the uh, statute of limitations doesn't go away. There are lots of different ways that could have been approached, but it conveniently happened during his presidential campaign. Now, as you could argue that that's why he started his presidential campaign so early, because he knew they were coming, so he was going to use it as a way to say, hey, they're trying to prosecute me while I'm running for office. There's lots of intricacies there. But the point still is that you should not, we should not live in a country where you are trying to deny the people the ability to vote for somebody just because you don't agree with them and using the democratic legal, the democratic and republic, you know, in the traditional sense of the word, the republican, the old sense of the word, not the party, but the idea that we are a republic and we have republican values. You should not use that system to directly undermine that democracy. And that is exactly what is happening. And I think... You know, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm, I'm wrong on this one, but that's pretty horrendous. That is using the beautiful system that we have, these checks and balances, in order to keep people who are fraudulent out of power, to keep every other part, the integral parts, whether it's the judiciary system, whether it's the state legislators and the, the governors of states or the president and the uh, Congress and Senate on the federal level, all of these different branches are broken out in order to limit the amount of power that anyone can grab. But then when you have one of those branches or two of those branches directly trying to manipulate the outcome for a third, that is using the power of our system, the decentralized nature of it, in order to manipulate the outcomes in another branch of the government. And let's be clear, there are lots of underhanded ways to do this as well, but this is out and out. And if this becomes a norm, 
you can kiss any straightforward election goodbye. It may not be it may not be within the first four years that we see this used over and over again. It may not be the first eight years. It may not be twenty. But imagine when there's even more divisiveness within the country. Imagine we rally around the next president and we have ten years of prosperity, but things get a little bit trickier in twenty. Just like right now, different people are using justifications from the nineteen sixties, from the nineteen seventies, the nineteen eighties in order to say, "Hey, this is a legal precedent." Uh, this is a norm in Congress. All of these things that happened in the past are being brought back up. Uh, think of the Title IX restrictions. That was passed in the, I believe, the late 60s, if I'm not mistaken. And now it be, has been expanded and expanded over time, but now, once again, it is being used as justification to add a completely new category to the class of protected uh, characteristics. So just because it won't happen immediately, because that, you know, Title IX, it sat as it was for probably the first four years, things were litigated, you know, the, and then it was like, okay, we're good. And then 20 years later, it was used as justification once again to expand the categories. It's been happening, you know, 40 years, 50 years later. This is exactly what will happen in this case. We may not see legal warfare again for another 20 years, but when eventually someone wants to do it, eventually when it happens, they can look back and say, hey, well, hey, we did it. We did it with President Trump. And, you know, obviously we set this precedent. So the Supreme Court, when they come in here, they're not just setting the precedent for right now. They're setting the precedent for the future. And the argument that this author goes for is that, well, yes, he did, you know, go into January 6th. It was a insurrection and therefore he should be disqualified. He basically agrees with the opinion of the Colorado courts. And the only argument that really resonates with me, besides the fact that he hasn't been convicted of insurrection yet, which means they are not only saying that he can't be on the ballot because of insurrection, but they're actually judging his actions as insurrection. So they're calling him guilty in that case, which is interesting because he hasn't been litigated. You know, isn't it supposed to be innocent until proven guilty? No, they're just outright saying he is guilty of that and therefore. But the other part is, do you have the ability to disenfranchise voters? Do you, as the courts, have the ability to directly say to people, no, you're not even allowed to have him as a option? Now, let's be clear, people can still write him in, and I'm sure that will happen. So that could be a nuance to the argument, which is, well, he's disenfranchised, but if people really want to express their opinion, they can out and out write his name in. But it's one of those uh, mixed arguments that I've had before where, oh, you, you can still do this thing, but we're going to put up a whole bunch of barriers to make it harder for you to do that. You're still free to do it. It's just making the you expressing your freedom that much harder. And putting limits on freedom doesn't really end. So just because they say, oh, well, you could write his name in now, eventually maybe they say, ah, oh, well, you know, actually, we're not just barring him from being on the ballot, you know, at all. We're just going to say, no, you can't even write his, his name. You, you could write in his name and we're just going to disqualify that vote. I'm not saying we're there yet. I'm just saying the more barriers you put up to people expressing their freedom, the more use to people ha are, become to having their freedom barred or limited or restricted in some way, shape, or form, and it becomes easier to do it in the future. And I think the people who are righteously angry now, stand up, make sure that you, if you want to express yourself, if you want to use the argument that you should be able to elect whoever you want and judge them on their character and their actions, 
then you need to stand up. You need to make sure that this limiting of your freedom, if that's how you view it, is not acceptable. And pressure, I know when I say pressure to the Supreme Court, you shouldn't pressure the Supreme Court. They should be devoid of politics and devoid of caring about public opinion. But find if you find a group that you could give some money to that can file an amicus brief when this does make it to the Supreme Court. I'm not saying it's going to be the best amicus brief in the world, but these sort of systems exist for a reason. You can express your opinion and make sure that it is heard on this one because I do believe that it is restricting the freedoms of the people of the United States. If they want to if you want to elect somebody, no matter how terrible they are, you should be allowed to elect them because this is our system at play. People have a voice in the system. I don't care if they have the worst viewpoints ever. Do I agree with everything on the far right? Do I agree with everything that's really progressive? You know, if you've listened for a long time, you know that I have lots of differing opinions from those people. But does that mean that because I don't like what they're saying, because I don't like their actions, because I don't like their policies, that I can restrict them from getting onto the ballot and stop people from voting for them. And yes, you're going to say, well, okay, but did those people actually surmount an insurrection against the country? And my argument would be, no matter what you think, whether it's insurrection or not, he has not been found guilty of insurrection. And if he is legally allowed to be found a uh, guilty, uh, or le- if there's a legal case for it, and he is found guilty of insurrection, there you go. You can have your chips, you can eat them too, you can laugh in my face, but right now, they have not found him guilty of insurrection, which is a high legal barrier, there's no doubt about that, and can you really deny that they want to get rid of Trump for more than just his actions on that day? They just don't like Trump anyway, so this malice, this anti-Trump hate because of his personality and because of some of his policies too, is that justification enough to try to disenfranchise the people that want to vote for him? No. And I should not be allowed to restrict anybody else and anybody else's expression of their opinion in the electoral system just because I don't agree with them. Because that is autocracy. That is totalitarianism. That is not a democratic republic system where everybody gets their say. And... And we try to have a system that speaks for the minority as well as the majority. Because a pure majority is not the way to go about things. It is, I don't want to compare it directly to mob rule. But let me ask you this. How easy is it to sway a majority of any given group with a, you know, not an amazing argument, but a pretty solid argument? You could very easily sway them, even though what you're saying is complete baloney. That is why the minority protections exist within our system in order to ensure that just because something is taking the U.S. by storm, just because there is a movement that has gotten 55% of the people on board, that other 45% can be protected against the rule of the majority. And that is what I meant when I spoke about Republican system earlier. That is the republic. That is the nature of our republic, our democratic republic working as it should and just because 55 percent of people don't want trump on the ballot doesn't mean those other 45 should be disenfranchised and their opinion should not be heard now i've talked a long time on this one it's just one of those topics that is hotly contested now and do i feel that my opinion is uh, is needed in this one honestly no i just wanted to talk about it so i did now we're going to jump to our second article that comes from the Ripon Society, and the headline reads, Should the Electoral College Be Preserved? 
And the subheadline reads, yes, it protects against tyranny. It's almost as if I paired these two for a very specific reason. Hmm. It's almost as I put these two back to back because one says one thing and another article says another thing. And it backs up the point I was making about the first. I mean, maybe it was intentional. Maybe I actually planned these things out. Or maybe, you know, I just fly by the seat of my pants. That is also possible. So I want to read one specific quote from this one. And I think that it will highlight what I was talking about in the last one and also give a little bit of elucidation to the argument of protecting the Electoral College. Quote, preserving the Constitution's separation of powers requires that each branch of government be independent. One way the Constitution achieves this separation in practice is to ensure that each branch has as little agency as possible over the appointment of members of the others. Generally, all the appointments for the Supreme Executive, Legislative, and Judiciary Magistrates should be drawn from the same fountain of authority of the people. There are, however, exceptions to this general rule. The people can also be tyrannical. Making each branch of government directly dependent on the popular will will eliminate any obstacle to the concentration of power in their hands. The Constitution itself was ratified in large part to solve the problem created by unchecked popular power at the state level during the 1780s. So think of it this way. Think of his argument as talking about, well, we have 50 states, but there are four or five, there are probably about five states that hold a majority of the U.S., or at least a plurality of the U.S. population. So do we want a system that is ruled by those five states alone, or do we want a system where even Wyoming, where even Montana, where even Idaho get a representative say in our system? Now, does that mean that the say has to be as large as those other places? No. But if they created a voting block like Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana together, they could, their electoral votes could represent the same as one of those big states. So you see how this system plays here. They're trying to say that the majority, the large sum of American people may have a particular opinion, but them foisting their opinion upon the rest of the nation simply because they outnumber them is also tyranny. And I think that's a very interesting argument that, of course, was brought up. If you were in U.S. history and you had a good U.S. history teacher, this is something that you explored. You probably had some anti-federalists in your class. You probably had some federalists in your class. And like I said, if you're a good teacher, you explored this idea very, very thoroughly. But the understanding that just because you are a state with a larger populace, just because you represent more people, that does not necessarily mean that you are going to rule how this system operates. Because we want to have a system that works for not just the enfranchised, but the disenfranchised. We want a system that works for the people who don't have the popular opinion, and they still could be right. And the reason that's extremely important, because guess what? A lot of abolitionists, they were not loved at the very beginning of this process. They were not very popular. Their message spread very quickly because they were right. But if the system was only for the sake of the majority, and the majority was able to outright use their power in order to put in a totally anti-abolitionist government and pass certain laws saying that you cannot restrict, uh, you cannot speak terribly about 
slavery. I'm saying it's a hypothetical, but that's what can happen when a pure majority, when it is just about whoever has the most people on their side, comes into power. Because then they also feel righteous, saying, ah, but we have a majority of the people on our side. They use it as a club in order to meet their ends, rather than allowing the people who may be less in number, but actually have a correct point, then allowing them to speak their mind and allowing that truth to go out into the system, allowing that argument about the truth to go out into the system and convince people and convince the rest of the people or the other people in the majority. Same thing with civil rights. Same thing with allowing women to vote. Same thing with a beginning of the prohibition movement as well as the abolition of the prohibition movement. Same thing with gay rights and marriage. Whether or not you 100% agree with any of those arguments, they all started with a minority. They all started with a smaller group that if the majority had their way, if it was a tyrannical system where only the majority could speak, where only the majority's opinions could be heard, then the minority would be completely outstripped. But no, the people in the minority, they kept fighting because there is a way for them to get their way. They can use the electoral system to get people in who have a different point of view than the majority. And they can change the way that our system operates because they are speaking truth to power, because their argument, even if you don't agree with their argument, because there is something there to that argument. And if it is a majority that rules and can completely shut out that argument, that is terrible for our system because it does not allow us to evolve and change. And that is that is what is beautiful about our system. Because we don't simply let the majority rule over us by pure elected demagoguery, by pure mob rule, the little guy, the small little group of people who believe something different can push and push and push. It may be a little bit harder, but they can still gain representation on the federal level, on the state level, if some of these different systems have uh, different electoral schemes as well. And they can affect change throughout the entire nation. That is something that cannot be said in other places that simply allow the mob to rule and making it so that you can simply just say you're going to hand away things. I mean, think about what happens if you just let the majority rule. A majority of people in this country probably want free money. So all you would have to do is say, ah, yes, free money. And then guess what? The majority is going to vote on your side. But maybe the minority is going to say, well, actually, we need to be fiscally responsible here. We need to make sure that we're not just going to inflate our currency by giving away free money. And then they can also win out the day. It is a way to hedge against bad policies. And that is the beauty of the Republican slash Democratic system. So that is why, and there's more to it. Please go actually read these articles. I'm just kind of giving an overview in my opinion and, and trying to extrapolate further from the author's arguments. Please do go seriously give these uh, articles a read because they are quite fascinating. And if I don't necessarily agree with everything the author is saying, they still have good points. So our last one comes from the American Conservative. And this is, why can't anyone say how much we spent on Ukraine? And let's be clear, I'll make this a, a really, really quick one. This is a really long one, so it is actually, if you want the full context, it is worth a good uh, read. But 
they're talking here about the ability of the executive branch to kind of move funding around and uh, allow different uh, stipulations and changing of where funding is able to go without necessarily having to fully account for it when talking about the budget for the year or the amount of money that we're directly sending to them. So it's a little bit of a shell game that's being played. Uh, I want to read one quote. Quote, the executive branch's ability to transfer funds can be limited by Congress in appropriations legislation. Congress can choose which agencies the transfer authority is granted to or withheld from. So the ability to transfer funds from one slush fund, like say we have uh, a fund for Ukrainian food aid that existed before the war effort. And then that agency says, well, actually, we want it to go towards um, military infrastructure or just infrastructure aid so they can rebuild their infrastructure so they can still operate as a military. That kind of transferring power can be limited by Congress, but it hasn't necessarily been limited by Congress. Uh, quote, specifically circumstances in which an agency can transfer funds or implement a series of other controls. Programming generally comes from fewer congressionally stipulated controls. Nevertheless, Congress can choose to restrict or prohibit an agency's ability to shift funds within an appropriations account of its choosing. So if people really want to stop this willy-nilly spending, not only do they have to say, hey, Congress, I want you to stop putting in your appropriations bill that this is going to go to Ukraine. They also have to stipulate, and I want you to limit the in the budgetary or the appropriations process for different agencies. They have to say, and you have to limit how much money can be transferred or how the money can be transferred from different funds within that agency towards Ukraine. So it's a lot more intricate, and it shows that there are lots of ways to get things done in Washington. There are lots of workarounds, and if you can try to pay attention, if you can try to understand how some of these different systems work, you can see how the game goes on, even if the frontal face of it, the things you see on the news, the obvious stuff, the not-deep-in-the-weeds stuff, seems to be going your way. And that's why you got to be vigilant, and that's why you should definitely go read that article in total, in whole, so you can even better understand the ability of these different executive agencies to reallocate funds for things that we may not necessarily agree with as a populace. So that's enough on all that negative stuff. We're going to jump to our daily delight. And this one comes from Whiskey Riff. And the headline reads, Genius House Cat Rings Doorbell to Let Owners Know When It's Ready to Come Inside. And you know, honestly, as much as I do not like ring doorbells, I don't like the idea of too many security cameras in the first place, maybe around the property, but directly in the house uh, or on the house. I don't like the idea. If it's closed circuit, if it stays completely within my viewing in my house, I'm fine with that. But if it's exported to a cloud service that they can go through it, analyze it, use it for AI stuff, nah, I'm not, I'm not that big of a fan. But there are moments when it, it could be useful when catching things that are adorable as this. Quote, the video, which has gone viral on TikTok, shows a smart cat utilizing the video doorbell to signal that they're outside, time is over. The cat jumps up on a small table on the front porch, stands up on its hind legs, stuffs its face and whiskers into the camera, and taps the doorbell button with its paw. And if you, if you want to see something adorable and you want to see something that reassures you about the intelligence of our animal friends, go watch this video. It's honestly kind of hilarious because he, he hits it and then he, he knows that it's ringing inside and he just stands there. He's like, I know you see me. Let me in. Let me in. It's absolutely hilarious. And I love it. 
So if you want to check out this cute video or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can go directly to them and read them. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. A little bit of a lighter segment, just kind of thoughts that I randomly have, a little bit less structured. I also sound a lot stupider during those. Well, nah, that's hard to argue. I sound stupid during all of these, but that's what makes it fun. So if you want to check that out, go over there. And uh, thanks for joining me for this one. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.